This is not about fixing a marriage. This is about helping people move forward. This is Susan Chestnut of the Chestnut Law Firm. This is my podcast from foster care to family law, a child welfare focus. I was raised in the foster care system. I was a child abuse investigator for the Department of Children and Families. And now I'm an attorney practicing family law where my passion is to focus on the best interests for the children involved. In my podcast, I will be meeting with industry experts exploring the seemingly impossible scenarios that families often struggle to manage. Each episode will include insights and concepts from professionals that deal with these issues every day. I'm here with Portia Scott. She is an attorney friend of mine. She's been practicing for 26 years. She is the president of the Treasure Coast Collaborative Law Group. Hi, Portia. Thanks for being on today with me. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me a little bit more about yourself, what you're doing. Me? Oh, okay. Well, as you said, I've been practicing forever. Um, I have been in Martin County pretty much my whole life. Um, born here with Martin County High and all that. I ran off to California for a couple of wild years. That was fun. And then I uh, came back and started my practice with my father. Uh, my father was an attorney in Stewart since 19, he got here in 1949. Oh, wow. I know, he came out of retirement to help me get started. And that was that was really interesting because it was a, completely different dynamic than when I was growing up and you asked your father why, he said, because I said so. That's his answer. Mm -hmm. We start practicing together and I ask him why, and he explains it to me in a way that all of a sudden I see how his brain works. And he's so logical and he's so precise and he was was so able to consume all of the facts and put them together. It was just a, that was a blessing to be able to have that. Did he practice elder law also? No, well, you know, back in the day, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, he kind of did everything if you practice law. He was the seventh member of the um, Martin County Bar Association. Or he was the seventh member in town, and he was the first president of the Martin County Bar Association. It was uh, a, a different time, you know. It was, so he, this is one of my favorite stories. One time he was, one year, he was serving as a city attorney for the city of Stewart, which is a part-time job. Uh, county attorney for Martin County, which is a part-time job. School board attorney for the Martin County School District, because it was a part-time job. Uh, he also was on the flood control district as a member, and he maintained a, practice, a private practice. So he was he was never home. You know, he was always. But one time they were having a joint meeting between the city of Stewart and Martin County, and this never happened. There was a disagreement, and back then nobody ever had a disagreement with him. Well, this time there was. And so the city turned to their attorney, my father, and said, well, what should we do? What, how do we go about this? And the county turns to their attorney, also my father, and says, yeah, how do we go about this? How do we get what we want? How do we fix this? And without missing a beat, my dad says, you should let the attorneys work it out. <laughs> That's Thank so you. fun. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so I've been practicing it forever. He quit, uh, he, he retired for real. I'm going to say it was probably 1998, where he said, you know, I'm really done practicing now. I mean, he was almost 70. And he had them, them placed up in the mountains. Well, he trained you up and then left you here. Well, again, it, you know, my father, he was a man. And so when I asked him, how do you actually get a summons issued 
he says, oh, you give it to your assistant. <laughs> they just, they just, it was a different, different world. Uh, but he did teach me a lot. And uh, I, I'm the youngest in my family. And I always knew that uh, when the end came for my parents, that once one of them died, I knew that I would be taking care of the other one, living with my house. I just thought my dad was going to die first, and then my mom would be living with us. Well, my mom, my mom died first. That was that was kind of earth moving because all these plans that everybody has in place, you know, you can't predict life, right? Mm-hmm. And so it changed. And so we ended up having dad move in with us, and he lived with us from the time he was 92 till he died at 96. But, you know, he got to die at home, so one of those people who loved him, he had a great life. He, he had said that three or four times, that uh, he, at one point he said his heart was fluttering at some point. And he told me about it later, and he said, so I sat there and I said, oh, well, I guess this is it, I guess I'm going to die. Well, I've had a good time, this has been fine, I'm ready. You know, it was just such a, a, a mature, peaceful way to approach the end of life. The more I deal with old people, and as you and I were talking about earlier, I, I, my, one of my passions is the elder law practice. Mm-hmm. And so I deal with old people all the time, and I love old people. They have the best stories. And, you know, you meet somebody, and you, you, all you see is, you know, there's this sweet 83-year-old woman who has trust. And then you find out that she used to be a model, and she was on cover of Vogue for, you know, six different times. And just these, these wild lives that people lead. Anyway, so that's, that's, that's the fun. The other fun thing, of course, is the collaborative law uh, issue, which is, I think, what we're supposed to be talking about today. Well, you, you made a good segue there. You talked about how your dad had a mature, peaceful way of dealing with life. So maybe we could talk about how collaborative law is a mature, peaceful way of dealing with divorce. Oh, look at you. That was such a good segue. Right? Right? That was talent right there. So tell us about collaborative law. How does it how does it differ than the traditional model? Okay, well let me let me talk a, a little bit about the traditional model. Although I know you know this, there are but the way that we have been doing. I've been practicing family law uh, since 1994, and when I first started, mediation was kind of a new concept in family law. It has been around, of course, in contract law forever. Uh, because people are, are smart and they're trying to figure out a way to cut their losses. And the way you cut your losses is you come to an agreement. You don't spend all of the resources of the organization on attorneys as much as we would love to take your money. That's not the right way to go about it. So the problem with uh, mediation in family law was, of course, that there's so much passion between the parties. Now. You know, you can argue that, like, the, the business that you built that you're, that you're having a fight with your, your co-worker, your co-worker, your co-owner, that that's your baby, and, and so it's kind of like a family law, but it isn't, because you don't have the emotional investment of saying, I choose this person for the rest of my life, as you do in family law, in, in divorces. So the divorce model has been superimposed I mean, you know, I know you know the history of it, but we started off in equity, and it was ecclesiastic courts, and, the, ju- and the, the church said what you can and can't do. This is this is back in very old England, of course. Mm. But there was a, it was very very hard to graph 
of family law into our legal system. So we stay in what's called courts of equity, which are fairness courts. Um, you know, what's what's fair, what's not fair. So mediation was brand new 30 years ago. I'm rolling, so can't do that. And the, the idea of mediation was resisted by family law practitioners. That is, attorneys who do family law day in and day out were like, why would we go to mediation? Why would I give up my skills knowing what the rules of evidence are, knowing what uh, is objectionable and what is not? You know, that's my, that's my theater. I'm in the courtroom, all eyes are on me. I can grab the attention anytime I want by standing up and saying, I object. You know, there's a, there's a drama that goes with it. There is. Well, so a lot of people were very hesitant. A lot of attorneys were very hesitant to go into mediation where mediation is a process, much like a lot of the law is a process. Mediation is a process where you sit down and you try to hammer it out without all the theatrics. Mediation is very, 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 very successful. I think the statistics I last saw were now it's up to 97% of family law cases settle as a result of mediation, not necessarily in mediation, but as a result of mediation. That's a huge number. That's, that's practically all of them. Almost. So the ones that actually go to trial in our standard litigation model are going to be ones where the parties just can't see the benefit of getting this thing resolved. And a lot of that, I'm not proud to say, but a lot of that I think is fueled by the attorneys who are making money off of feeding the conflict. Now, here's the way I feel about that. There are plenty of people who are going through changes in their relationship. We don't need to get all of our money for one year out of one clock. No, we you don't. Know, there's plenty of people out there, especially with the COVID-19 and everybody staying in the house together for so long. Mm-hmm. My marriage is made it stronger. But I'm going to guess that's not going to be universally true. So, so the, the, the standard litigation model is, is basically one that pits the parties against each other. And I'm going to win. No, I'm going to win. And I've got the, the meanest bulldog attorney. No, I've got a pit bull over here. And it's going to be a dog fight. Well, that's all fun. What is that, that story about wrestling with pigs? I don't know that story. You get dirty and the pig gets happy. You know, it, it, it doesn't do any good. It's, it's, I think, a short version of it, but everybody gets filthy doing it. Right. So the standard litigation model is you come into my office, I get a seven dollars $10,000 retainer. We exchange a tremendous amount of documents with the other side. And the other side hems and haws because they don't really want to give you their tax returns from year before last. Well, you probably filed jointly anyway. You probably could get it. But the attorneys engage in this, I'm going to earn my money and I'm going to really impress my client. Yeah, I call that tit-for-tat discovery. Yes. Yeah, it's terrible. It is. It's exhausting. It it doesn't add any more value. Right. None. No, no, nothing good comes of it except for, you know, the bottom line for the attorney. This is the this is the cartoon I was into. It's my favorite cartoon, or right up there. Um, it's not a Gary Larson cartoon, uh, and it's these two women. They're sitting in a bar. They're drinking martinis, and one of them says to the other, "Well, the divorce settlement, the divorce settlement's finally done. His attorney gets the beach house. My attorney gets the condo in the city." Oh my gosh! 
there's an awful lot of truth to that. There sure mm-hmm. is. So nonetheless, there are plenty of excellent practitioners out there who don't practice law this way. But the problem is that the client or the potential client has no way to know which, which people are reasonable and which ones aren't. And if what they want is someone who's really going to fight for them and they express that, then many times the attorney will say, oh, well, I'm the best fighter you've ever seen. I'll fight every single little thing without saying, and it's going to cost every bit of equity in your house for you and your wife or you and your husband to get divorced. So about four years ago, the state of Florida, the legislature, brilliant minds up in Tallahassee, uh, came up with an addition to the domestic relations divorce uh, statute. And they added a whole other section on what's called collaborative law. Collaboration is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, we come from different places, but when we get together, we come up with something that includes the DNA of both sides, but creates something brand new. So. It's kind of like a reasonable, reasonable settlement on steroids. Uh, we bring in, we, that is the parties choose to take this path instead of litigation. They make a conscious decision at the very beginning that we're not gonna spend our children's college fund getting a divorce from one another. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect, it's not, it's not for everyone, you know, if there's a, uh, a significant history of domestic violence, and I'm not talking about you, know, you got to a pushing fight seven years ago. I mean, there's been dominance and control and isolation and all those horrible uh, abusive factors. Sometimes it's not gonna work. But for your average people who are just trying to figure out what, how do we get to the next step in our lives, it's brilliant. So what happens is the attorneys take a giant step back in the litigation model, the attorneys are charging. You know, we're the generals that are getting our forces together to go into this battle. In the collaborative model, we take a giant step backward and we have other people that help facilitate the discussion. So for instance, you, have a, you might have a mental health um, professional. They're not judging anybody. They're not saying you're crazy. They're not saying everybody needs to go to therapy right now. They're not saying anything like that. They are trained to deal with people whose emotions are raw. Attorneys, we pick that up over years of practice. <coughs> Excuse me. But this is what they've been specifically trained to do. So they go into the, you go into the meeting, and the first meeting you have is with your attorney and your spouse and your spouse's attorney and a mental health professional. And if you've got um, finances that need to be figured out, you can have a, a professional uh, financial neutral again. And I keep using the term neutral because they don't pick sides. You know, in your litigation model, I've got my forensic accountant, you've got your forensic accountant, and we go in and it's the battle of the experts, which is insanely expensive, but why? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you go in for your meeting, you have a meeting where everybody is sitting there, no one's talking about what is the solution at this point. What we're talking about at this point is what are the issues that we have to discuss? And we try to avoid using the standard litigation language like alimony, which is you know, one that sets off bells and whistles. That's a trigger word. It's, it's, yes. the, it's a trigger word. That's yes, exactly that's right. a trigger word. 
So we have issues. And so you wouldn't talk about Calamon. You would talk about, well, you know, the wife here is really worried that she's not going to be able to stay in the same school district for the children and because she can't afford it. All right. So it's an issue that we address rather than jump into the end. Mm-hmm. In the litigation model, of course, we always jump to the end and then we work our way back. We stay. We want alimony. We want the house. We want uh, the children to live with me all the time. We want all these. Uh, all we. Uh, I want the most child support I could possibly get. Well, okay, that's a model. It's just not the one that's going to facilitate the best interests, not only of the parties but also their kids. You know, the kids are not. The kids are not going to relish the idea of mom and dad fighting over money uh, and have this be two years of their formative lives. Litigation is wildly expensive. It doesn't have to be, but if you have reasonable people who get along, maybe they're not in a divorce attorney's office in the first place. So I had a case, uh, a fellow comes in and he says, all right, how much is this going to and like and and this is a long time ago before I realized you should never try to get into that conversation. And I said, realistically, well, you got two kids, you got a retirement, you got a house, you got a job. It's not that complicated, you know. We know how it's going to break down, and so I'm going to say it probably will be fifteen thousand dollars each side. The problem was I had no idea how crazy the other side was because I never met her, and she was nuts. <laughs> and they ended up sending well more. My client's fee, he paid $60,000. Oh, my gosh. The other side, she paid over $85,000. They didn't have this kind of money. And and so that's when I learned, oh, you don't ever make an estimate because he kept saying, you said this was only going to be $15,000. i am like, I didn't know she was crazy. Mm-hmm. She, she, was, she, was, she was crazy. But, you know, there's a, there's a, a dynamic that comes in. So, so for certain people, the collaborative law model won't work. But if you want to take a more civilized, a more rational uh, way to decouple, whatever that Gwyneth Paltrow quote was, conscious uncomfort, whatever, mm-hmm. if you want to approach it that way, collaborative law is the wave of the future. It is what is going to be with everybody with the exception of violent criminals, this is the way it's going to be. So, Patricia Sherino, about two years ago, took the collaborative, she's an attorney in Stewart. She took the collaborative law training when it was brand new, because remember this, it was only four years ago that the statute was passed, and then it didn't go into effect until the Supreme Court approved rules on how we were actually going to do it, right. which was three years ago. Mm-hmm. So, two years ago, an attorney named Patricia Sherino went and did the training. And as she's the first one to tell you, she totally drank the Kool-Aid. She fell in love with it. That's the way. This is the only way to go. This is it. It's fabulous. And she came back and recruited some of us who are like-minded people. Uh, we've had cases against one another uh, over the years. And so she pretty much hand-selected people that she thought would be responsive to the collaborative method. You know, let's try to get this thing resolved rather than let's fight for every single thing let's fight for two and a half hours over a used popcorn popper mm. so she she founded trish was collaborative law it's a practice group we have attorneys who are trained in the collaborative law process we have mental health professionals who have been trained as well in the collaborative process and we have some financial experts 
who also are trained in the collaborative law process. So one of the things I found that was most helpful with the financial guys, usually guys, sorry, girls could be there too, is that they are able to say, well, you know, this is how much money there is. If we rework some of these things and we, and we make it, uh, we add this much money to the wife's uh, retirement account and this much to the husband's, and we go forward with that model, then you both will be able to retire in 35 years with adequate income and approximately a, a standard of living that is uh, perfect for you. Anyway, so that's very, very helpful because we, it's the same information. You know, where's the money come from? Where's it go? But it's, instead of it all being in the past, which is the litigation model, you know, what have you done with this money? It turns into what can we do with this money right. in the future? Right. And you, you bring me to something that I was just thinking about is if you do the collaborative process, it's a progressive process that you can be a part of. And, and just exactly what you said, instead of looking at the historical things that have already happened that you can't control any longer, you still are in the driver's seat about what happens. I had a collaborative law case where, you know, in every divorce, the, the couple has to uncouple, as you said, and usually one of the one of them move out. They either get a new house and buy a new house or they go rent somewhere else or they go stay with family. And in the collaborative case that I had, we had to talk about that as it was happening because they needed to separate for their own personal reasons. And so we were able to make that decision collectively on how that was going to affect their finances and how that was going to affect their time sharing at the time that it was occurring, which was really, really helpful for that family. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like you're dealing with the problems as they arise rather than in a litigation model. Often what you try to do is you try to figure out what's going to be, you know, we've got a four-year-old child. Well, when the kid's 14, you know, what kind of uh, time sharing should we have? Mm -hmm. That's impossible to, I mean, you can try. And by the time kid's 16, you're not going to want to have anything to do with either one of you. (laughs) But if you start from a place of a line in the sand, then it's doomed to failure because the line is going to keep moving with the with the sands of time. Mm-hmm. Did I pull that together? Yes, I did. So, so I, I I'm I'm in love with the collaborative law theory. Just like mediation wasn't going to work, and that it came great guns working. I feel the exact same thing about the collaborative process. I, I love the idea that uh, what we focus on is the issues without giving them titles and names. I will tell you, as a practitioner, it is really hard to step back from, you know, your, your general role. I mean, one of the main things a litigator does is we develop strategies. How are we going to do this? And how are we going to do that? How are we going to get our point across while destroying the other side? And that's the language you use. Mm-hmm. You, know, you actually say, you know, you want to destroy the other side. I don't want to destroy the, the party on the other side, but that's the, that's the game. It's, it's kind of like, do you play Risk? Have you ever played the board game Risk? No. So it's a it's board game, and it's all supposed to be as a board game. In in college, we were a we were in Tallahassee, and there was a hurricane coming, and we we had the state house, the, the most uh, secure house for a hurricane. So we had like 16 people coming over. So we put four different Risk game board games together. We played Risk all weekend, and it was a it was a Memorial Day weekend, it was a three day weekend, and by the end. By the end, everyone is, you know, they, you, you destroy people and you conquer people and you keep moving forward. And at the end, it's just two people left. And it's, you know, I'm not kidding, it's like 70 hours we've been playing this game. 
and the intensity, and it's a board game, right? It's just a game, but the intensity was so much and that, that when I won, uh-huh. I couldn't help but just rub the guy's face in it. You know, you, you thought you had me. And unfortunately, I can see those same intensity characteristics showing up when I'm dealing with other people's marriage. Not my own marriage, it's somebody else's marriage. And there I am, like, I want to mop the floor. It's not healthy. It's not correct. It's not the way that we, as adults, should be helping people through the divorce process. Mm -hmm. So I was thrilled when I went and did my class with law training. So how do you find the right attorney for the process? Because you were talking about attorneys that are litigators. How do you, as a litigating attorney, how do you take that hat off and become a cooperative attorney? Yeah, right. It, it really needs to start at the beginning. But one of the fun things that a lot of people don't know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture out and say a lot of attorneys don't know this, mm-hmm. is that when someone comes into your office and they want to discuss with you the ending of their marriage. You as an attorney are ethically obligated to talk to them about all of the options that are available to them. So one of the options, the first one out of my mouth is, have you tried marriage counseling? Because I've seen miracles work with marriage counseling. Mm-hmm. Uh, marriages that five years in, you never thought it'd make it, now they've been married for 25, 30 years. And, and it's, I'm a big fan of marriage counseling if you get the right counseling. Uh, another thing is, of course, you can do pre-suit mediation where you try to get together and try to resolve everything without an attorney and just with, with or without an mm-hmm. um, And just with a mediator, a skilled family law mediator can make all the difference in the world. Oh, absolutely. And uh, then you also have, you know, your litigation model, you know, where we're going to give me a bunch of money up front. We're going to do what we can to make your spouse out to be uh, really a bad parent so that you get the kids more of the time so you can get more child support. That's obviously destructive on a number of levels. And now, of course, you have to discuss the collaborative law model with people. So the very first thing I would say is if you're looking for an attorney to help you through the process of ending your marriage, and, and family counseling hasn't worked, the very first thing is during the initial interview, if the, see if they mention collaborative law. We got to get the word out there that this is not only a better way to go about it, but it's also mandatory that uh, family law practitioners discuss collaborative law as an option. Mm-hmm. Ethics required. Mm-hmm. Oh, and if someone says ethics, ethics, of course you, you, you walk out as fast as you possibly can. Yeah. So let's talk so about that's, the, that's what about the other players? To make sure that you're getting the right person. Also, you can tell by the tone of voice and how they're interacting with you is like, is like oh, I, I'm going to mop the floor with him or, or any other of those graphic, unnecessarily aggressive uh, colloquialisms. Mm-hmm. So if, if somebody comes out and they say, oh, I'm going to fight for you and I'm going to throw him in jail for contempt. I don't want him in. I don't want him in jail. He's got to watch the kids this weekend. I've got a date. You know? mm-hmm. So, so those are the kinds of things to be on the lookout. Now, some people will always want to fight, but that is so counterproductive for the rest of your the future. It's not going to help you get to a better place. It's going to make you stay and see in the hostility of the divorce. Which you know, if these people loved each other enough to get married. 
you know, the opposite of the opposite of love is not uh, hate. The opposite is apathy. Yes. So if someone is hating you, really hating you, well, that means they're still emotionally engaged with you. Right. That's 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 my psychology for the day. <laughs> Well, so with the attorneys, both attorneys in the collaborative process have to be collaborative certified. So Well, they certainly should be. There's nothing in the rules that say that they have to be, but otherwise, if they haven't had the training, mm-hmm. right? So so for our group, the Treasure Coast Collaborative Law Group, which covers Indian Group, St. Louis, D. Martin, and Okeechobee counties, in order to join us, you either have to have already gone through your training or at least be registered to go through. Because in our practice group, somebody comes into my office, I, I explain to them the collaborative law, they say, that sounds so much better. They say, well, what do I do now? Well, the first thing I go, I say, okay. So I write a letter to the other side. I say, please Google collaborative law and find out if this is not a better way to go about it for you and your spouse. Then, and I give them a list of, I give them the website that tcclg.com mm-hmm. for anybody who might be listening and wanted to look it up I, and I get it there and they, there's a whole bunch of people there that are certified in uh, having gone through the training certified is the long word that has gone through the training okay uh, and hopefully they will contact someone there and we can start the process moving that's the idea of the practice group is that we have we know the people in our group are of a like mind understand that this is the the, the method that we're going to be comfortable moving forward with. The other thing is, and this is, a, this is kind of a big deal, one of the benefits of the collaborative law, aside from it just being better, is that the attorneys and the other neutrals and the parties themselves all sign an agreement. We all agree that we're going to settle this collaboratively. We're going to work together to figure out what's the best way for the individual members of this family to go forward. And under no circumstances are we ever going to go in front of a judge in a confrontational manner. We're not going to go and say we need temporary alimony. Mm-hmm. No, you work that out in the in the collaborative group. The collaborative group is however many of the professionals that we've discussed, the attorneys, the mental health neutral, the financial neutral, anybody else that you think that might could benefit. You know, maybe it's it's little Stevie's coach needs to come in and discuss something. Whoever is going to help with the process. It's all confidential. Nobody can ever make any of us say what happened in these meetings. We meet sometimes without the parties, sometimes with the parties. And we're talking about them behind their back. We absolutely are. But they got to understand that we're all doing it because we want to get what's best for them. Mm -hmm. So we sign an agreement that says that if it all fails and we just can't work it out, then the attorney and the other attorney and the mental health worker and anybody else that's been in the process is off the case and cannot come back. It's not a threat, it's not a cost, it's a commitment. This is the commitment we are all making to settling it here rather than having, and I know you know this, one of, one of our most prominent family court judges, she'll say, I will make I will make all the decisions you want if you guys can't come up with it. I will tell you when your kids have to go to bed. I will tell you when they have to get up. I will tell you what they can eat and what they can't eat. I can micromanage your life and your children. And that's the power of the court, right? That's the state coming in because we can't figure out how to do this ourselves in the collaborative process. 
and we go in front of the judge, who is, of course, a representative of our government, and therefore our government is telling us whether we can give the kid a, a cupcake on their birthday. It's terrifying mm-hmm. the alternatives to making decisions for yourself. Right. So let's talk about the collaborative process as far as the length of time. Is it any quicker than a, a traditional divorce? Well, that's that's a, that's a very interesting, that's such a good question. You did so good. Here's the thing, I have, we can't do this anymore, but back, way back when I first started practicing law, I had a woman come into my office and she was nine and a half months pregnant and she needed to get divorced because there's a, a rule that if a child is born in a marriage, it's presumed that the father I'm sorry, that the husband is the father. And it's one of the strongest presumptions in law. It's really hard to unprove that. Uh, you know, you could come in with DNA tests and you could come in with birth certificates and say somebody else's name. But a lot of times that still isn't enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's really hard to undo that. And she wanted to marry the father of her child. So I was able, she came in in the morning. We came up with a, a, an agreement between her and her husband because they didn't have anything. It was easy. I got him divorced that morning. We did a, a notice of hearing, and the judge said, oh, well, if you got an agreement, come on in. Like I said, we can't do this anymore. But but back in the day, mm-hmm. we got her divorced. I think it was like 1.30, a uniform motion calendar where you could just come in and get the divorce. Quickie, quickie. This is a quickie divorce. We got her divorced. She went, and uh, her boyfriend, she and her boyfriend, her fiancé, father of the child, went and got a marriage license. They came back to my office. I performed a marriage ceremony on her, and she went into labor, all in one day. Married, I'm sorry, divorced, married, and mother. Now that, that's the Guinness World Book of Records right there. So there are examples where the, the standard litigation model can move really, really quickly if everybody is, if there's nothing to fight about, nobody cares if just trying to get it done. So, but, but typically, the collaborative process, it takes as long as it takes. Now, that's the very first thing. So if there are... If there are issues that have to be addressed, the the example I was talking about with you before, uh, when I was doing my training, they were, we were talking about the different issues that can pop up that it's not going to save the marriage by fixing this. this. That's not what this is about. This is not about fixing a marriage. This is about helping people move forward. So the example that we got in our uh, training seminar, which I thought was really telling, was that the financial neutral had gone and done a review of the party's finances and the income and outgo and the taxes and all that. And he, the financial neutral, had found that every Friday from the same ATM, there was $500 being taken out at the casino. Now, it was at the Hard Rock Cafe casino. And so without pointing fingers, without making any kind of judgment, everybody just said, that's interesting. So that's a couple of grand a month that we're not utilizing best for the family. So we need to deal with that. The mental health worker then was able to uh, refer the husband in this case to some kind of addictive counseling because gambling addiction is an addiction and it can, it can show up in the strangest places because um, this particular scenario was not one where they were short of money. It was just, that's probably something that needs to be dealt with. So, 
Under those circumstances, one spouse would go and get counsel. That doesn't stop the collaborative process, but it does make everybody realize we do have something else going on that which probably needs to be resolved. On the other hand, if things are going swimmingly and you, you can get the whole thing knocked out in, I'm going to say the probably the shortest would be six or seven hours worth of meetings among the uh, collaborative professionals and the parties. So it, depending on how you break it up, you can have a two-hour meeting and then a three and a two or mm -hmm. um, But the other aspect is probably that you would, if, if there are some obstacles, if there's some roadblocks that pop up, mm -hmm. then you're probably looking at maybe six weeks from the time you start the process till you have a settlement agreement that addresses fully everything. Uh, you may have temporary agreements in between so that you can, okay, well, we can't resolve um, everything today, but let's resolve little Bobby's and Joanne's soccer practice schedule. You know, you can, you can break it down into meaningful of the road agreements, and then at the end, you can incorporate them all. On the other hand, uh, it could easily last for months as well. You, know, you, could, you could go two and a half to three months, uh, even with everybody working together, just because scheduling can be such an issue. Because all these folks have to have to be able to communicate with each other. However, with the whole Zoom, uh, with the COVID-19 leading us to Zoom uh, as a regular, or what's the other one, Google Hangouts and mm -hmm. IX and all Microsoft that Teams, uh, there's a lot. I think that that might help the scheduling a little bit for the uh, collaborative groups because we all don't need to, you know, drive to Port St. Lucie as a meeting place to get these things done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you know, that's the whole thing. Our, our lives are changing so much, just piecemeal by piecemeal because of our new reality with the coronavirus and how it has changed so many things in our everyday lives. I, you know, I, I, as I may have mentioned once or twice, I do a lot of work with the elderly and I have to be super, super careful. And they typically uh, don't use Zoom with them and telephones don't always work as well either. So we're doing some meetings out in the parking lot. We're, we're doing gloves and masks and Lysol wipes because I have a stash of them. But it's just one little aspect. And I think that in, in similarly, it's the, the way that we all are doing business from home now mm -hmm. could also work very well with the collaborative model going forward. Absolutely. Do you think so? I do. I really do. Yeah. I've seen a big shift. I've done a lot of mediations over Zoom. I've had quite a few court hearings over Zoom now. I think the technology is the change with COVID. I think some of those changes will stay. But I want to go back to what you were talking about earlier. I was thinking about some of the, the players that are on the collaborative team and the different ways. Particularly, I was thinking in the, the length of time and the process itself. So in my experience, the facilitator has sometimes worked with the parents independently and done the parenting plan. The financial expert works with the family independently and they talk about their finances and they gather all the documents and that financial expert, you know, puts their spreadsheets together and does a mock equitable distribution and having all of those pieces done as a as an attorney who generally litigates to have all of that together in one place for discussion i have found just to be so much more productive what do you think about that i think that sounds i think that sounds exactly like it would be that that once you have the raw data we don't need to spin it that's the that's the thing about why attorneys 
I think, are, are hesitant and resistant to the collaborative model because we have been taught, trained, and spent our professional lives taking facts and molding them and spinning it so that it does the best for our client. Mm -hmm. Where this is much more like, well, you know, Andrew Cuomo quoting um, Joe Friday, he's mm -hmm. always like, just the facts, mm -hmm. just the facts. And you're dealing with just the facts. Now, again, it's really hard for someone who has spent a lot of time preparing for trial the whole lines, whatever trial it might be, uh, to step back and say, okay, yes, that, that does show that this person makes uh, $87,000 a year. And this other person makes $25,000 a year. That's what it shows without going, therefore, he's got to pay her or she's got to pay him an equalizing amount because that's what we're trained to do. So that's the problem that I, I see a lot of litigators. I do think eventually everybody's going to be collaboratively trained and still practicing. I think everyone is going to recognize that this is essential to maintaining our civilization on a generational basis. I know that sounds grandiose, but I mean it. I, I think that eventually everyone will be trained that way and it probably will get easier, but okay. So it's only been, honestly, it's only been in practice in Florida three years and three years for attorneys is an instant, you know, there's, there's time and there's time in the courts. Right. So, oh yeah, we're going to get a hearing immediately. And what that means is eight weeks. Yeah. So, I, I, three years is, is baby time. Uh, now, the good news is that the collaborative model has been in place for, for decades around the world. The United States is, is playing catch-up. I forget where the first one was in the United States, the first state that passed it. It might have been California, it might have been Oregon, but it was somewhere out west. And that was, that was like 15, 16 years ago. So uh, in my practice, because I, I deal with a lot of people from all over the, you know, everybody's parents retired to Florida. That's so right. I spend a lot of time on the phone with people in other states. And a lot of them are attorneys because we just populate the world. Mm -hmm. And I'll be talking with them and somehow collaborative law will come up and I'll say something about, you know, well, you know, we've just got like 10 new members in our organization and we're, we're really moving forward. This is great. Uh, and they're like, they're like, well, isn't everybody trained out there? No, no, it's, it's, it's new to us. So it's coming, you know, it's, it's, it's coming and you can either get on board or you can get out of the way. Uh, unfortunately, if you get out of the way, then you are going to miss an opportunity to really help people. And I don't know about other people, but you know, I did not go into the practice of law because I was ever going to, I was ever going to get a yacht. Like, you know, I did not go into it for the money. Uh, I figured I could make a living and I could help them. And, and since my prior experiences in life have led me down this road, I'm happy to be here. But I really do believe that collaborative law is the, is the wave of the future and it's for the benefit of all of us. Well, let's talk about the cost because I think that's the one thing we haven't explored that if I was listening, I would want to know the answer. Compare the two, the traditional model and the collaborative law model, and tell everybody what the, the cost benefit is and how that looks in the future because of the resiliency of a collaborative law agreement compared to a decision made by someone else independently. Uh, I think you touched on something profound there. The studies have shown time and time and time again 
that if you make your own agreement and you mm-hmm. sign your name and you ink it, that you are so much more likely to comply with it. You're keeping your word. You made a promise. You made an agreement. You're sticking with it. And that is invaluable because you had input into it. You weren't forced into it. You contrast that with a judge saying, I said your 14-year-old needs to go to bed at 7.30. And I will throw you in jail if you if I find out you're not putting that child in bed at that time. Huge difference, right? You're not going to comply with somebody standing on high and dictating you anywhere. I mean, I would, of course, because I have the utmost respect for court. <laughs> but uh, a lot of people uh, would not be as likely to comply with the court order as they are with an agreement that subsequently is approved by the court and becomes a court order. Big difference. Mm-hmm. So as far as the litigation model, let's say you go and you have a contested divorce and you have child support established at uh, $2,000 a month from the mother to the father and the mother also has to pay $2,000 a month in spousal support to her ex-husband. And then she, so she is livid. She owns her own business. She actually has to sign the check every month. And every time she signs it, she's just reminded that she's still supporting that good for another guy. So she has a bump in her income and it uh, uh, increases by another $10,000 a month. And it goes forward for three months. Well, A, good for her. Mm-hmm. But B, if somebody else catches wind of it, then the other spouse could come back and say, oh, you know what, we need to, we need to uh, modify this. Because yes, judge, this is what you ordered, but now our circumstances have changed. The child is older and doesn't go to preschool anymore, but now is enrolled in private school tuition. And we have always agreed that private school would be the way to go. And the tuition is gone up. And my needs... You know, my, my needs have gone up too. My, my rent has increased because my beautiful house on the ocean is like taxes have gone up, whatever the excuse are. And then you go back to court again. And the whole process, there's a guideline from the Supreme Court that says for a modification action, it's supposed to be resolved in three months. I have never seen a modification action resolved in three months. It's a guideline, it's not a rule, you know that expression? Yeah. Well, that's it. Uh-huh. I've seen modification actions last longer than the original divorce actions. This is why family law attorneys never put their files into storage because <laughs> they're going to come back. He didn't pick the child up at 8 o'clock. He was supposed to. He didn't pick up the child until 9. I wanted to have him held in court. Woo. Yeah. No. Yeah, you, know, you show a pattern of it, then we can talk about it. But you know, one time, and, and plus he called and said that his dog was in the vet. I mean, anyway. So I'm sorry, I got off on a tangent. Some of these stories just stay in your mind, and they just reverberate when you're least expected. So financially, so the the potential for future expenses in litigation model is substantial. If you're litigating, I almost can guarantee you that you're going to come back to court and argue about it at some point in the future. Don't they say that it's two years? Don't they say it's two years after a court makes a decision before families stop trying to relitigate that issue or quit coming back? Well, the the two-year model I always use is I always tell my client that two years from the date of the final judgment, however it's reached, within two years, you're going to be in a better position financially than you are. Mm-hmm. And it's almost universally true. 
But that author is just about the time when they decide they want to go back. Mm-hmm. Right? So I don't know what the recidivism, whatever that word is, rate is, but I can tell you it's high when you go through the litigation model. I got, I got, I got horror stories all the time. However, let's talk about the collaborative process. Mm-hmm. Now, ideally, the collaborative process results in an agreement that still protects the children, protects the children under the law, it's, it's, of course, complies with the terms of the law, uh, and protects the parties themselves. So you're starting off from a better position. You're starting off from this is the best we could come up with. And since it's a team approach, you've got more minds working towards the same goal, not adversarial, right. but collaboratively. It's huge. When you first come into the office and we talk about the collaborative process, Depending on your circumstances, do we need to have a mental health neutral at all? Probably, you know, just generally probably. And they're going to require a retainer because the the professionals need to get paid to get this to actually work. People have to be able to make a living. So it depends on how much work there is, right? So the more assets there are, the more children there are, the more special needs any of those kids have, the more dynamic the situation, of course, the, the longer we're going to think it's going to take to get through this. That, that only makes sense. The more complicated it is, the more it's going to take to get through it. So you can think that your mental health professional is going to require an initial retainer depending on how complicated the scenario is. So the least would be like $3,500. Most of them do not do it at a flat rate. Most of them do it on an hourly basis. But that it's it's up to the negotiations uh, on each one of these. Everything is negotiable. That's the, right. the one thing to always remember. Everything is negotiable. Mm-hmm. So you've got that. Then your first account. Again, how complicated are we talking about? Like two or three separate businesses, or are we just talking about your own tax returns? Your own tax returns and your income and you know your retirement. You know you probably could get by with a twenty five hundred dollar retainer. Again, not a flat rate, but based on hourly. So there's potential. Mm-hmm. Like I say, it's happening. But there's a potential that you can get some of those funds re- refunded. And then for the attorneys, uh, you know, it can be anywhere from a $3,500 retainer to as high as you want to go. Mm-hmm. Because it's all a, a factor. Um, it's all dependent on how complicated the action is. But when you contrast that with that nightmare story I told you about with the crazy people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they, they burn through all the equity in the house. They burn through their business interests and they burn through what little retirement they have. Nobody wants that. I don't want that. Some people might want that. I don't want that. I don't, I don't understand so that. So financially, oh, I'm sorry. And, of course, once you come to this agreement, it's unlikely you're going to need to come back and change it. You might want to uh, tweak it. Somebody inherits a bunch of money and suddenly, you know, that changes the dynamic. But it's not like you're going to come back in with guns blazing to change it. You would say, okay, well, this, this maybe isn't working as well as it otherwise would have. Mm-hmm. So again, maturity, civilization, and what's best for the family members and for the children. A mature, you know, peaceful you know, you've way. Seen a lot of kids getting destroyed by their parents, of course. Yes. Yes. I hear stories all the time. Well, Portia, how, do, how does someone start this process if they didn't come sit with you or me? How do they start the process? And if you're not looking for a divorce and you want to join our group, how do, how do they find us? Okay, that's, that's wonderful. First off, everybody should do their homework, right? So Google Collaborative Law, read at least three or four articles on it. 
because there are different approaches, but they all are going towards the same thing. So do your homework and research what collaborative law is. Uh, there are resources available. There is an organization called the Florida Association of Collaborative Professionals, which is a mouthful. And if you are a member of a practice group, which of course you and I are, then we are automatically members, as long as we pay our dues, of the Florida Association of Collaborative Professionals. One of the things that that organization is working on is coming up with manuals on what you can expect and what you, uh, the best way, the best practices, procedures, right? What's the best way to get from point A to point B? So the, the first thing is to do the research and then you can get onto, uh, while you're Googling, while you're out there Googling, uh, wherever you live. If you live down in Miami-Dade, if you live down in Broward, uh, there are practice groups down there. I would really, really recommend that rather than going to an attorney who holds themselves out as a family law practitioner, without adding that they are collaboratively trained, that you avoid them mm -hmm. uh, because they're going to be resistant to it because it's not in their toolkit mm -hmm. yet. So the attorneys need to go, and, and mental health professionals, and, you know, I'm just talking to attorneys. Everybody needs to get trained who's going to participate in this collaborative process. It's a wonderful, wonderful uh, bit of information. Even if you never use it, hopefully it'll change the way that you perceive the the methods that are available to us. Mm -hmm. um, also, please check out our webpage. And if you are interested, please contact us. There's a contact link, link, it's not a link, it's a button. There's a contact button on our webpage. Uh, and if you click on that, the message comes directly to me and then I send it back to the secretary, whoever is here for the application. Mm -hmm. um, we meet normally, normally, we meet 10 times uh, a year. Uh, Usually, it's on the first Monday of the month, and we meet, what is it, August through May. Well, because of COVID-19, and we all learning these new technologies, we haven't been having our regular meetings, although we have been having the executive committee meetings, which have helped plan how we're going to uh, approach the coming years. I, I can't tell you how much uh, of a benefit it is to meet with other professionals and to chat with them about what their experiences have been. One of the one of the things that uh, collaborative law is supposed to do is supposed to be much more private. And it is more private because you're not going to be in court talking about the horrible things that your spouse has done or will do once did 25 years ago. The problem is that it's not uniform yet over the state. So like, for instance, some, some jurisdictions say, uh, we don't even want to see the agreement. You just let us look at it, make sure it complies with the law. We sign, we sign the final order, and that's what's part of the record. Other places say, no, no, we need absolutely everything. So the privacy aspect, now it's still very, very, very private because everything's confidential. Nobody needs to know that you really make $230,000 a year, even though you're only claiming $55,000 on your taxes. <laughs> um, not that I'm recommending that. That's law. It's wrong. You shouldn't do that. But it becomes very much a... Uh, private discussion and the fact that you have a gambling addiction or whatever mm -hmm. uh, demons you're fighting is, is kept private. So I don't know if that answered your question, but it does. we filled up some time. It does. Well, tell me, Portia, if I wanted to get in contact with you about collaborative law, just maybe if I had any questions or wanted to get started, or if I wanted to talk to you about elder law and how maybe I could sign up, how do I get in contact with you? Well, uh, there's a, a number of ways. Of course, we've got uh, the Portia B. Scott Charter. It's spelled P-O-R-T-I-A, by the way, Portia B. Scott Charter. 
uh, is my, uh, I've got a, a web page that, you, that has contact there, contact information plus of course, and it's got my telephone number, which is 772-287-0096. I am uh, more than happy to talk to anybody who has an interest in either becoming trained in collaborative or of course, if you've got some sweet little old lady or sweet little old man in your life, I love talking to old. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Portia, for talking to me about Collaborative Law this morning. I very much appreciate you. It was wonderful talking with you, Susan. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of From Foster Care to Family Law, a Child Welfare Focus. I hope that this interview provided some valuable insight to help you deal with your unique circumstances. If you found this episode useful, please share this with friends and family that could benefit from this information. If you have a family law need or related matter, please contact me directly and I will be happy to help you.